when I toured George's death row and looked into the face of Carl Isaacs, who was the all-day killer. It is something that comes with years of experience on the street, interacting with criminals. So there's five guys shooting at me. Our cars are bumper to bumper. They're shooting at me in my police car from eight to 12 feet away. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. With me today in the studio is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we're back on the same side of the continent. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? And today, we have a very special guest whose name is strikingly familiar. Hi, I'm Tim Clemente. I'm Jim's brother. I'm a retired FBI agent and a former uh, St. Louis Metropolitan Police Officer. So, Tim, it's great to have you on Best Case, Worst Case. And as you know, we cover cases and bring our listeners behind police lines. So today, we'd like to know where in your career did this particular case occur? Uh, At the very beginning. uh, My first day on the job as a police officer. First day on the street. I had graduated the academy got to the precinct I was being assigned to, the 3rd District, known as the Bloody 3rd in South St. Louis. And I was assigned to a training officer, and he took me out on my first ride around the department area where I would be working. Wow. The Bloody 3rd, that was actually what it was called? All right, we need to hear what that means. Yeah, for sure. One of the most violent police precincts in the world, certainly in the civilized world. And uh, I had graduated number one in the police academy in, in most categories, uh, top academic, top firearms, and best overall officer. And because I finished in the top two, the top two people get to choose where they want to work. Wait, so, wait. So you picked the bloody third? Oh, yeah. The commandant of the academy calls uh, me and the number two guy into his office the day before graduation and said, okay, you're number one, you're number two. Where do you want to work? And uh, I said, well, is the bloody third still the most violent district in the city? And he said, yes, it is. And I said, well, that's where I want to be. And he said, just like all the other number ones. So what about the number two guy? Did he pick the bloody third or was he a little smarter? He can't because I did. So he had to pick the sixth district up north, which was the second most violent. But Francie, by the way, you're asking that question. Clearly, you don't know my brother, Tim. Okay, (laughs) Obviously not. Because he wants the most action possible because why? If you're going to be a cop, be a cop to be a cop, not to be uh, somebody who's monitoring jaywalking or traffic violations. You want to work violent crime. That's 
cops should be protecting people from the worst possible crimes and where there's an area where the worst prop possible crimes are being committed repeatedly and regularly. It's where I want to work. Well, so let me ask you this, Tim. At this time, you graduate from police academy. You're going to go into the bloody third where mm-hmm. presumably it's extremely dangerous to be a cop or anyone else, it sounds like. Were you single at the time? No, I was married. I was married. Had a few kids uh, when I started out there. I think uh, by this point in time, I had at least three or four kids. Three or four kids. And how did your wife feel about you selecting the bloody third? I'm not so sure that she was very aware of that fact. (laughs) I bet not. Yeah. And you didn't volunteer any information. (laughs) Yeah. And and we happen to be living in the bloody third, too, as a matter of fact. I'm starting to sense a Clementi theme here, Jim. Well, I have to say that uh, shortly thereafter... I was visiting Tim, and he told me, you know, you could buy a mansion here for what you paid for your apartment in New York. And just then, somebody was putting up a sign for an open house five doors away from Tim's house. And so we walked over, and we walked in and went through this amazing house. It's just a three-story, 100-year-old Tudor brick construction, just beautiful, with a detached garage and a 40-foot pool in the backyard. And I said to the guy, so how much is it? And he goes, well, we're listening for 205 but you could probably get it for 195 And I said, this room? <laughs> and he said, no, the whole house. And I was like, okay, I'll buy it. And I made an offer of 185 and he accepted it. I wrote him a check for $1,000 and I bought a house in St. Louis, even though I lived in New York City and worked in Little Rock, Arkansas at the time. But Jim, did Tim happen to tell you that you were buying property in what was known as the bloody <laughs> no. No. Actually, though, to be fair, this was a beautiful neighborhood surrounded by a war zone. So right. it was like the best neighborhood in Baghdad. But you're still in, <laughs> right. you're still in Baghdad, though. Yeah, but it was right. all big old mansions and really historic, unbelievably well-crafted homes just surrounded by horror. And there were really violent crimes in our neighborhood right there. The, the house right behind Jim's, there was a home invasion robbery, which... Uh, Turned out pretty well, though, in the end. Uh, the homeowner ended up shooting and killing the the robber who threatened to kill his grandson, a wow. four-month-old grandson that they were babysitting for. He and his wife were babysitting. It was a lovely summer evening. They had their back door open to let a breeze come through the house, and a robber decided to come through the house. Well, and that's a story for another time. <laughs> but the thing is that Tim and I were two of, I think, the first three families who came into this neighborhood to totally fix up the houses and really bring that neighborhood up to where by the time 10 years had passed, those houses were going for a million dollars. And the fact is that, you know, when people take the risk and come into a neighborhood like that, it actually brings up the neighborhood because it drives out crime. And it was amazing. All those houses were built um, for the 1904 uh, World's Fair in St. Louis, and they were built by people who made their money in the beer business because those Germans were not permitted to build by Forest Grove Park, which was the main site of the World's Fair, because they made their money in alcohol. And so they were kind of ostracized. So they built this second neighborhood, and it's beautiful. Like my house was 6,800 square feet, which is Massive. Well, that's and massive, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it was beautiful and I, I just loved it. Anyway, little side note, back to the case that you were talking about. So you're on your first day on the job and your supervisor's driving you around. What's the next thing that happened? So I'm assigned to Kurt as my training officer for the first three months or whatever on the street. And uh, we left the station 
drove down to where our beat would be within the bloody third. And we happened to have the most violent beat within the bloody third. So I really hit the jackpot. So I was assigned to car on that day, 1338, which was uh, the first shift is the one. So that means it's the first shift of the day, the three, third district, bloody third. So that's the one, three, and then 38 was the precinct. So the 38th precinct in the third district on the first shift of the day. And uh, we're driving down Cherokee Street, which is a kind of a nice uh, little antique street. Um, lots of antique stores going down this little neighborhood, very historic area, pretty well preserved, but again, surrounded by horrible crime. And as we're driving down Cherokee, he stops in front of this one building, a little brownstone, really run down. And uh, we just parked the car for a minute. And he says, in that house right there is the most wanted guy in St. Louis. And I said, well, you know where he is. Why is he the most wanted guy? And he said, because he's so Teflon. The guy gets away with murder after murder and every other crime. We can never get him. And, And then sure enough, the front door opens and out walks this guy that looks like the devil incarnate about uh, 28, 32 years old, somewhere around there, kind of uh, muscular, but not really big. And just the meanest looking eyes. When he looks at you, you're looking straight into hell. And he looks right at me, comes out of his house. We're sitting right out in front. He looks right at the new guy sitting in the seat right closest to him. He just stares at me. And I was like, wow, that's a scary looking dude. And he said, yep, his name's Kevin Brown. And everybody, every cop in this city wants to take him down, but he gets away with everything. Let me guess. Tim Clemente gets stared down by the most wanted man in, in the city, or at least in the district. And did you make a promise to yourself? Did you at that point say to yourself, that guy's going down, I'm going to get him? Or does it just not that dramatic? Oh, no, it's very dramatic. Absolutely. Oops. I said, then that's my goal. And he said, well, you're joining... 1,600 other cops that want to do the same thing. They said, this guy causes crime all over the city and everywhere between here and Chicago. And he started telling me the story about how connected he was to, I think it was Larry Hoover in Chicago that ran, uh, I believe it was the Crips at the time in Chicago. He, he was he ran a criminal enterprise that was destroying Chicago. And this guy was his protege doing the same thing in St. Louis. And let me just ask you, how far away from your and my house did this guy live? Uh, he's he's fifteen blocks away, or whatever. Oh, called. fifteen blocks, <laughs> a, a seven minute walk. <laughs> this is my first day on the job, though, and Kurt, so Kurt's explaining to me, and I'm looking at this guy, and he just stares us down. He's not at all. He's got no compunction at all about. He's basically mf and the police by just giving us the evil eye. And he, I'm not kidding. He's a scary looking guy. He had dreadlocks. He wasn't a handsome man. Muscular, big. And just mean, mean looking. Stone cold. So that was the first day. That was my first introduction to him. First day on the job. And uh, Kevin Brown came into my life at other times during my time as a police officer. Well, I think the stare down is so interesting. You know, you say that you thought looking into his eyes was like looking into hell. That's only happened to me once, really. And it was when I toured Georgia's death row and looked into the face of Carl Isaacs, who was the all day killer. He was a horrific human being who committed horrible crimes in South Georgia back in the 70s. He was tried like three different times and and sentenced to death each time until Mm -hmm. it finally took. But unlike all the others on death row, I really got frightened looking into his eyes. Everyone else seemed somewhat normal and they were all terrible. They'd all done terrible crimes and Mm -hmm. they all deserved to be there. But Isaacs had that evil eye look that you just can't mistake. Nope. Some people have it, and everybody sees it. Well, everybody sees it, and 
I've never been one to ascribe to the sort of uh, you can see someone's soul through their eyes, but I think I, there are I some do. people you yeah, can. Absolutely. In this case, though, it's just the opposite. You could see that he had no soul. Hmm. All right. Well, what happened next in this case? This is kind of setting up a really dangerous situation for you. So over the next couple of years, I'm working the bloody third. This is in uh, early 92, I think. So over the next year, 92, 93, 93 becomes the most violent year in the city's history and in our area. I mean, on, on one given Saturday, I had five homicides in my beat, my area within the third district, not the third district itself. Five and on one day? Five on one Saturday and 11 that week. So there's a lot of cops that work their entire career and never come across a dead body. I was stumbling over them five times a day on a bad day and, and once or twice a day on other days. So we had a lot of homicides. We had a lot of shooting victims. We had a lot of drug crime. And we kept hearing repeatedly how much this guy, Kevin Brown, was involved in it. And it was, and you were hearing it all the time, robberies, murders, everything else. And so, uh, you know, he was just a daily part of our life. And he, he was insulated because he ran this gang and he had the lower members, members of the gang doing most of the violent crime for him, which he would oversee. It's like the old Italian mob where yeah. they insulate themselves by having guys below them who are actually the ones committing Absolutely. the crime. And he had made one mistake a couple of years prior where he did a burglary while engaged in this burglary, a St. Louis University law school student who's living in the apartment comes home to the apartment, stumbles upon this guy burglarizing his place and uh, ends up shooting the guy. So he kills this young law student that's in St. Louis and law school. Terrible. But somehow the courts being ridiculously lenient towards hardcore criminals let him out on parole after, I don't know, I think he only served about a year and a half. What? They didn't even get him on on felony murder. Oh, Jim, that's appalling. Yeah. (laughs) And so he's on a manslaughter charge, gets out after about a year, year and a half, and it just upped his street cred because did the murder, got out, back on the street. Now he moves up in the gang. And so he's leading the gang. So he's got this fact that he's now on supervised release. So he has to keep himself clean. So how he does that is by delegating most of the violent stuff to the guys below him. But he's still a man without a soul. So he wants to be involved whenever he can. So one evening I'm driving and I'm no longer with Kurt. This is a year later. Kurt, my training officer, is in a separate car and I'm in car 2338. And what that means, second shift. So Kurt and I both worked on what was known as the overlay shift. So it was 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and then 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. And there was not a third shift for us. The normal 7 to 3, 3 to 11, 11 to 7 shifts go on. And then our overlay was to cover the most violent or the busiest times of the day. And then if at 2 a.m. it was still busy, we would continue working all night. So we got overtime virtually every time we were on our second shift. Hmm. And are you by yourself? I'm by myself. Again, something that we talked about with another uh, guest we had on recently, Jim, you remember, where I just don't understand from a resource standpoint why we're putting cops in cars alone. It just seems so, I understand it's resources, but it's so dangerous and unnecessary and our police officers deserve better. I think it's much safer to have two. I would agree. And it's, it's actually more fun when you have two. Uh, you get to do more. You, engaging in foot pursuits are more possible. There's a lot of things that you can't do when you're alone um, and a lot of things that are harder to do when you're alone. But you don't have the manpower. You got to fill those cars because you got to cover all those beats. And so uh, we get a call 
on the radio. Kurt's in, uh, I think, car 2339. I'm in car 2338. So our precincts, our beats are right next to each other. We're patrolling in the area. And my sergeant, Sergeant Ralph Harper, great sergeant, feared by everyone, but funny, just a hysterical guy. He used to always stop people that were lingering. There's different terms for people that are lingering, mm-hmm. but uh, you'd have a group of guys, gangbangers hanging out on a corner that you know are up to no good. Sergeant Harper would drive up and he'd jump out and scream at every one of them and say, if I see you out here again, I'm going to arrest you all. And they were like, for what? He would say, mopery with intent to gawk. Mopery <laughs> with intent to gawk. That's fantastic. I think that's penal code 2703-21CB. Code, exactly. Um, <laughs> so Sergeant Harper gets on the radio and says, okay, I'm at the 7-Eleven just got robbed. Two black males, both armed with handguns. Uh, robbed 7-Eleven, took out off westbound in the alley behind the 7-Eleven. So Kurt and I were our precincts. This is actually in my precinct. We're close by. So we roll up and we pull into an alley at the same time. And it's not the alley right behind the 7-Eleven. We're a couple blocks away trying to work our way towards the 7-Eleven, hoping these two armed robbers are still on foot running in that direction. So I pull into the alley first. Kurt comes from the other direction. We both turn our headlight, headlights off in our police cars. We're driving down this dark alley. He's uh, you know 50 feet behind my car and his car. Come down an alley to a T in the alley. And then I turn right and I come another, I don't know, maybe 100 feet to get to a road. Now the alley is teeing off to a road. And as I crawl up to this road, and again, I'm looking for two young black males on foot with guns that just robbed the 7-Eleven, but a car approaches and comes head on towards me and its headlights are off. My headlights are off, their headlights are off. And I notice right away that the neon flashing signal of crime is flashing in the front driver's seat of this car. Wait, wait, what's the neon flashing signal of crime? I'm not familiar with it. It's the I am guilty, I am guilty, I am guilty. Look (laughs) at how big my eyes are because I'm looking at a police officer neon sign. Fantastic. Instantly noticeable, just under streetlight. There's no headlights illuminating this guy because mine are off. And the guy driving the car, his eyes get as big as dinner plates. And I know he's doing that because he's doing something wrong. And he just stumbled upon a police officer. He literally pulled into an alley with his headlights off at night and is bumper to bumper with my car. And I'm looking right at him and he's giving me the But Jim, of, is that what we call in the business reasonable and articulable suspicion? <laughs> I think it might be. Well, there are a few things there that he's doing that you shouldn't be doing, like driving at night in a vehicle with your lights off and turning into an alley there. I think this is so great for our listeners to hear because uh, so often experienced police officers can have trouble articulating what we need them to articulate, that reasonable and yeah. articulable suspicion to stop someone, to do a stop and frisk. And this is where courts don't understand, judges don't understand, even prosecutors don't understand because we've never been in that position. We've never watched crime happen literally in front of us. We don't have that many dealings with criminals as the crime is being committed and right after. And so it's where police officers develop those cues that they understand Mm -hmm. means someone is doing something wrong. Right. It is nothing more than an informed instinct now. It's not just some, you know, innate thing. It is something that comes with years of experience on the street, interacting with criminals, and then you start being able to pick up these nuances. 
Some of them aren't so subtle, like when somebody's eyes go really wide because they realize, oh my God, I just made a big mistake. I can tell you that in the preceding year and a half that I had been on the street, I had caught guys driving stolen cars almost every single day because of that. And sometimes three or four times a day. Right. And you would just see it right away. It'd be like, okay, I'm pulling that guy over. And then you go to pull them over and they either run, they go across a state line, they jump out of the car and take off and it's a foot pursuit. And in the meantime, generally you call out the, the license plate if you can, or if you have a partner, they'd call it out and it comes back on the hot sheet stolen. So here I am bumper to bumper with this car and the guy with the dinner plate neon headlights, not the bright ones that on the car, but on his, uh, in his Face. forehead. <laughs> and so I grabbed the radio. And I'm about to call out the license plate, but I can't see it because he's bumping and bumping with me. Now he puts the car in reverse and very gingerly backs out of the alley to allow me to come out of the alley where I was trying. <laughs> nothing to see here. Yeah. Nothing to oh, see yes. here, I'm officer. I'm sorry, officer. <laughs> and at this point, I realized there's four other black males in this car. It's a Toyota Camry station wagon. It looks brand new. It looks like something a suburban mom would be driving to the grocery store. And these young men, I can't see all of them. I can see the driver and I can just see there are other heads all around him. The car is full. And they all have this kind of look. So I look at the license plate. I just call out the license plate. I just yell out the, the numerics on the license plate on the radio. Dispatcher, check that for the hot sheet. And then I start accelerating towards them because I'm either going to T-bone these guys in the car or I'm going to pull right alongside. So I'm going to trap at least the driver in the car. And as I do that, he takes off backwards like a bat out of hell. Now he's going backwards down the street, headlights off, trying to escape a police officer that's pulling up on him. So I throw the Christmas lights on. I'm going to try. I'm trying to pull him over now. He's not taking it. So he's going backwards at 40, 50 miles an hour down the street in a Toyota Camry station wagon through stop signs, through two or three intersections. And now the dispatcher comes back, says 2338, it's on the hot sheet. So now I know that's a stolen car. So I know that what I first saw in him has been proven to be true. I am driving a stolen car. I am driving a stolen car. I am driving a stolen car. He's flashing like uh, Morse code to me with his eyes. And he's going backwards down the street. So now Kurt in the car behind me hears it's on the hot sheet. He doesn't know why I'm chasing after a car with its headlights off going backwards down the street while I'm driving with my headlights off with my Christmas lights on. And after about two and a half blocks racing backwards, he comes to another intersection and he screeches on the brakes and I'm racing towards him. So now he's suddenly stopping. I'm trying to stop in front of him. And then he throws the car and drive and comes at me head on. So now we're in a head on collision in the middle of an intersection. He just goes straight at me. And uh, immediately when he hits me, doors open and I had been on the radio just then saying, I think they're getting ready to bail. I think they're getting ready to bail. Kurt, I'll go left. You go right. I'm just, trying, I'm just starting to say that because I can see something's changing in what he's doing. And he was trying to decide which way to go when they finally decided to hit him head on. So, so these guys who are probably engaged in criminal conduct, mm -hmm. as we're going to find out, I'm sure, ram a police car in order to bail out and run. Yeah. And, and for anyone who's watched television with the helicopters overhead as the suspect bails out of the car and runs, it almost never ends well for the suspect. Well, in this case, it could have ended badly for a lot of people, but I'll tell you the rest of the story. All right. I can't wait to hear it. So they ran my police car. Instantly, all the doors in the car open. Two front doors, two second seat doors, and five guys jump out. Guns blazing. 
So there's five guys shooting at me. Our cars are bumper to bumper. They're shooting at me in my police car from eight to 12 feet away. So just to be clear, they fired. I mean, they, oh, they come out of the out car shooting. firing. I'm, I'm on the radio because I'm describing the fact that they're, I think they're about to bail and trying to alert Kurt behind me in the car, a hundred feet behind me. And as I am saying that, shots are being fired at me. I have the, I have the recording of what I said to the, the dispatcher. Shots are being fired at me. So what kind of weapons did they have? Uh, they had a variety. They had uh, a couple of nine millimeter Lugers. Uh, they had a 45. And then here's the best part. In the back of this Toyota Camry station wagon, which any suburban mom might be driving to the grocery store any day of the week um, and taking toting her three or four kids around, there's a rear hatch area in the station wagon. And that guy that was sitting in the back there, because there were five people in the car, two in the front, two in the back seat, one in the very back. That guy's in the very back facing backwards. He's got a sawed off shotgun. And his purpose is if we get pulled over by the cops, shoot through the back window, kill the cop and we'll drive away. Oh, Tim. So I encounter them head on in this alley. Because if I had come up behind them in that alley or on that street, I'd have just been shot through the tinted rear window where I never would have seen the guy, never would have known that he had a sawed-off shotgun back there. And with the scatter pattern of a shotgun it's hard sawed to off, you can't miss. But thankfully, he's facing that way. So he's trying to climb over the back seat to get out of the car because his goal was never to open the hatchback. He never figured out how to do that from the inside. He was going to shoot through the hatchback window. So he's having to climb out and get out. So he's not able to shoot at me with the sawed-off shotgun. So the other guys, and he has a handgun too, I think. So he's just, they're all just winging and praying, you know, just holding the gun up, tilted sideways, gangbanger style shooting. And But Tim, you're, so you're being shot at. I, I think that this is just something that most of us cannot understand because we've never, thank God, been shot at. What is going through your mind as you're being shot at? What's going through my mind is how slow it's all happening, despite the fact that this is happening in quarter of a second, half a second, and unravels, goes from a pursuit to now it's a gunfight, and I haven't engaged in the gunfight yet, and perhaps I need to. <laughs> and so what's really amazing is that I never heard a gun go off, and there's five of them shooting at me, and I never saw bullets hit anything, didn't see any or notice any signs of impact. So just so our listeners know, that's called auditory shutdown. Yeah, so the auditory shutdown takes place, and my other senses improve. So my hearing, I don't need the hearing anymore. Hearing's not going to save my life. My sight is going to save my life. So I'm seeing the flashes of all the guns. And it's in slow motion because I can see, I'm watching where each of the guys are moving. I'm tracking five guys simultaneously as I am opening the driver's door of my car and rolling out of the car, drawing my gun all at the same time. And again, this is taking place in less than a second. Shots are fired, continuing to be fired. Guys are starting to scatter. I roll out of my car. I go to use my door for cover, and then my door decides I don't need it for cover anymore. <laughs> and at the moment, I don't realize how. I'm trying to figure out how am I moving forward when I'm rolling sideways, but somehow I couldn't figure that out at that moment. So I take cover. There's like a mailbox there. I take cover, pop back up. I'm now concerned. Kurt's behind me. Those shots are going towards him. Is he going to get shot? I jump up, and I'm going to kill the guy that's the closest to me, gun in his hand, and I bring my gun up. And again, I can draw from the holster and fire and, and hit multiple targets in, in three quarters of a second. So in probably a quarter to a half a second, I have my gun out. I have my gun on target. I'm about to shoot the guy right in the forehead. He's holding the gun up. And as I go to pull the trigger, and a trigger pull is far less than a quarter of a second, 
But in the time taking place now where everything slows down, I'm in a stress, extremely stressful situation, time slows down by hundreds of times. And what I mean by that is that quarter of a second of me pulling the trigger becomes literally 10 seconds of my life. And I'm looking at him, I'm seeing the hammer on my gun come back, and it's about to fall forward. And that coming back is a 16th of an inch of trigger pull on my gun to an eighth of an inch. It's not much of an action physically. It's coming back. I see it. I see him clearly, and I see the hammer of my gun. I see the sights of my gun, and I see the gunfire everywhere else all at the same time. My vision is so enhanced because my other senses are being deprived of awareness by my brain, and my brain is saying, use your eyes. Use your eyes more than anything else. And luckily I do because he drops the gun. So he realizes he's about to die. He lets go of the gun, and both his hands come up on either side of his face. But Tim, it's too late. I thought it was too late, but somehow I released the trigger. The hammer again comes back to its original position. The gun doesn't fire. I can see in his eyes, you know, the panic. I'm die. I'm about to die. And then another shot to my left goes off. And I look, and there's a guy running, and he's running behind a row of hedges about 75 yards away now. He's gotten that far in the second and a half, two seconds, three seconds. He was the first guy out of the car. He was the backseat passenger on the passenger side. And he's bolting and he's firing over his shoulder back at me. So I immediately turn in his direction with my gun and I fire very quickly two rounds at his head, which is all I can see because he's running behind a hedge with a gun over his head shooting at me. And I fire two rounds expecting for him to just drop like every target I ever shot in the academy. And he didn't drop. And I was like, what? And I, I immediately thought to myself, how could I possibly miss? Well, oh, I, I don't know. It's an they, emergency situation. Yeah. You're being shot at. Your adrenaline is pumping. So I mean, like, And then a the guy on the right side, way over here, is still shooting at me. And I look at him, but I can't, I can't get at him. He's just right on a corner behind a building. So I shoot two more times at this guy who's now 85 yards away and still running. And he's still shooting at me over his shoulder. And again, he doesn't drop. And I was like, what? And I go to pull the trigger again, and I notice a bar directly beyond him has now emptied. Everybody in the bar here heard the car accident, the gunshot, so now 50 people are out on the street. I can no longer shoot because they would be in danger of my rounds. They're a couple hundred yards downrange, but again, my vision is so acute at this point that I'm picking up so much more information than I ordinarily would have. I mean, to be looking at a guy that's shooting at me and be able to see how many people are coming out of a bar down the road, I, I can't explain how it happens, but it happens. Well, and you're making decisions so quickly. I mean, you're noticing that either your shots are not hitting as expected. You see the other guy from the other side shooting at you, and you're noticing the bar patrons. I mean, it just yeah. seems, Jim, is your brother a freak of nature or what? Yeah, of course. He's a Clemente. What do you expect? This, this is what happens. I can just tell you that people that have experienced these kind of situations, and it's how elite soldiers are chosen, like Delta Force operators, SEAL Team 6 guys, because they can stay calm and focused in these situations in combat where there's total chaos every minute of every day and they can take in all this information and process it properly. I don't know. I can just tell you that this is what happened. And it's not the only shootout I was in. It's not the only time I was shot at where I had the same kind of visual clarity. And they always say, Francie, that it's those who are trained for the firefight that actually calm down during the firefight. And they're the ones that typically survive because they're not frantic and excited and just being impulsive. They actually are thinking and they're acting accordingly. And that's one of the things that keeps, for example, special forces guys from 
getting killed while they're in the middle of violent firefights. Well, and if it was me, I can just tell you, I imagine that I would be on the ground in a ball trying to make myself as tiny as possible and praying for someone to rescue me and that it would be over soon. But you don't know that until it actually happens. Wow. It might, might be just the opposite. You might be poking these guys' eyes out with a stick and taking their <laughs> guns and shooting the other ones. Anything's Using my possible. nails. So tell me at this point, Tim... First of all, I just want our listeners to know, I'm like sweating. I'm sitting here in studio with Tim sweating because I, I don't know what happens next. But also, I wish you all were here watching Tim talk because Tim is a talker with his hands. And he is showing me as he's going down the alley and as the car and the T-bone and the he's using his hands. I wish you guys could see it because it really makes me understand the story better. Well, I, so, wish, I wish your uh, listeners could uh, hear my hands. I do, exactly. So this is an amazing case, and we definitely want to hear what happens after this. So next time, we'll come back and we'll continue the story with my brother, Tim Clementi, when he was a police officer in the city of St. Louis. So for now, we're signing off with Best Case, Worst Case. Until next time, thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe, and you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org.